0: Hello and welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit different for several reasons. First, I actually was expecting to interview a guest, but she wasn't feeling well. So we had to cancel last minute. And I'm all dressed up. So I was like, I got to record something, but I didn't really have anything on the schedule. But this podcast idea has been on my mind and heart for. A very long time, and it's going to be perhaps a little bit messy, disorganized because I didn't plan for this in advance. I literally just got the email right before the interview that it was going to be canceled. So I'm doing this totally impromptu. But I read the book um, "Breeding Sweetgrass" by Robin Wall Kimmermer, Kimmerer, I hope I said that right. Like I said, I haven't, I didn't practice for this podcast. But I didn't want to delay this podcast anymore because I read this book about a year ago, and lots of you have probably read it. It's a New York Times bestseller, I believe. It's a national bestseller here. It's a fantastic book. I love it. And the reason why I wanted to do a podcast about it is because not only is the book amazing, but I believe that she touches upon things that scientists are afraid to talk about, that we have been shunned to talk about. So we don't talk about them. And specifically what I took from this book. Now, it's been a while since I read it. So as I go through this podcast, I'm going to refer to pages. But I have been on this journey since a little bit before 2020. But 2020 was really like when I decided I wanted to make a change. I enrolled in this personal development course that totally changed my life. And this was before the pandemic hit. So it was like perfect timing. I already started going about these big changes. And then when the pandemic hit, it let me, it gave me the time and space to really breathe and tap into myself, my intuition. And I learned how to do that through this course. Basically, through this course, I discovered the spiritual side of myself. I have, I grew up with being Catholic, but my family, by the time they got around to me, i I was the last born and my sister's 12 years older than me. My family kind of they got a, They kind of gave up a bit, so my sister had to go to church religiously, whereas I we went more intermittently, and I just didn't like it, and I didn't understand it. And this isn't no um, disrespect to any religions out there, but it just wasn't for me. So when I was young, I asked my mom to stop, and we did stop. So ever since then, I have been without. And for the longest time, I was even really negative towards religion, but this, this is not a conversation about religion. And in 2020, when I did this personal development course that really talked about getting in touch with yourself again, like your true self, your authentic self, getting in touch with your intuition, that's when I started to, I guess, rediscover spirituality because it's pro- it's all, always in us. And I started to take it more seriously. But I never talked about it, even honestly, actually, I really haven't talked about it that much at all. Even on my Instagram, I'm hesitant to talk about it because there is such a stigma against it. Like So many scientists are atheists, and I know that religion and spirituality are different, but for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to kind of lump them together. And I remember one of my friends in graduate school, she was religious, and we would kind of come down on her because we would be like, how can you be religious and be a scientist? They're in direct conflict. And there are some things in conflict. We're not going to ignore that. But I want to ask you to be more open-minded about this conversation. But this conversation is really about spirituality. And what I feel has been missing in the science world, I feel like scientists have become so analytical so logical that we've ignored this other sense and for we we've now finally began to recognize that we've ignored people we've ignored local communities the people living on the ground with animals with wildlife and often before westerners before Europeans came along and disrupted things they were coexisting with pe- with wildlife and even if they were hunting them using products they were doing it so sustainably. So it wasn't until that this western presence came that things kind of got messed up. And now the conservation story has been for a long time until I would say like the past 10 years it's it's starting to reverse, but there's still so much work to do. But the conservation was story used to be that we need to go to protected areas, or we need to create protected areas, protect wildlife from people, and we need to do it in these faraway places. So a lot of times our protected areas for us in the United States we're out west, where a lot of people don't live. And this has come at the expense of indigenous communities. And then around the world, my experience is heavily in Africa, so I will draw upon those experiences. But that was a big problem in in Kenya, where national parks were designated like Amboseli National Park. And I first learned about this when I did a study abroad program that the people had for a long time coexisted amongst wildlife peacefully. But once the park was established, their access to water, which it's a very arid area, so water is important, was taken away. They needed to water their cattle, but they weren't allowed in the park. They used the National Park System model from the United States, which doesn't allow people to, to use the park without paying park fees. And there's probably rules about letting cattle in there and goats. Therefore, the people were excluded from the park. And they lost what they had had for centuries, maybe even millennia. And what happened is the government wouldn't listen to them. They got mad and they felt like they had no voice and they had to spear animals. They had to kill wildlife in order for the government to listen to them. So rhinos were poached. And then us on the outside from the United States or areas outside of Africa, we think, oh, the local people are bad. They're poaching wildlife. They're killing animals. They're killing these endangered species. But the story is much more complex than that. So we as scientists have ignored indigenous knowledge, indigenous wisdom. But also the thing that I really love about this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is that it also, it's, it's even beyond from an analytical point. What I feel like we've been missing is even beyond, beyond from an analytical point of, okay, we're not incorporating indigenous knowledge. I think we as scientists, as the Western scientists, I'm in the United States, I'm a Western scientist. We have been ignoring our own, I'm going to call spirituality with nature, our own ability to be in touch with nature. So that's what it's long and short, but that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode. And I am so excited for you to join me on this journey. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Manka, formerly Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's traveled the world getting their hands dirty, but was given the nickname the Fancy Scientist because I love to dress up and be fancy. My goal is to connect people with nature so that we can restore our planet and rediscover who we really are. I share with you my insights as a scientist and offer real talk on animals, conservation, lifestyle, and advice on this amazing but confusing career. Join me to learn about our world and how we can become the best versions of ourselves so that we can thrive and more effectively conserve nature for all living beings. What I want to talk about today is this idea that as scientists, we have become disconnected from the part of ourselves that feels this connection with nature. We have been trained to look at things so objectively, and this is to reduce bias. Because, and this, I'm sure this started before. Jane but Jane Goodall was especially criticized when she named her chimpanzees because the idea of naming an animal could introduce bias. If you have a chimpanzee that is, you know, T-55, that's like the tag number or the time that you saw him and the, the number that's associated with him, you can have a much more objective look at it. That's the idea. But if you name the chimpanzee Charlie, then you might as- start to associate humanized qualities on this chimpanzee, and that might affect your science. So, this is where the, the idea came from. And she challenged that by naming her animals. And now it's pretty common for scientists to name animals, at least in in mammal work. Um, probably not as much like her birds. All the birds, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but no, they have bird tags. So, probably not. But, anyways, when you're working with mammals, especially larger mammals, you're dealing with fewer individuals usually. And people started naming them. So now it's more common. But this idea that as a scientist, yes, you don't want to bias your work. Of course, we want to remain a neutral observer. But what I think has happened so much in science is that we have become so much a neutral observer that we have become disconnected from nature and other people in society that we have learned like we can't even relate to them anymore and actually I want to take that back I don't think scientists have become disconnected from nature actually I don't think that's true but I think we are not encouraged to talk about it so when scientists talk like at happy hour or just one-on-one I know from me and my friends there are Deep reasons why we do what we do that go beyond academic knowledge, at least in the field of ecology, zoology, wildlife biology, conservation biology. And I tell my students this all the time the students who work with me in my successful wildlife professional program that if you're doing something like applying for a job or if you're applying for graduate school, or I helped somebody with their National Science Foundation graduate fellowship program grant in their personal statement, your true reason could be like, I love elephants and I want to study them. But you can't say that. When you're applying for jobs and things, you have to say, and it's not that this is not true, you have to explain that you are fascinated by elephants because they are amongst, this is like the phrases I would use, amongst the most intelligent animals on the planet. They have really sophisticated social behavior. We're uncovering things about them every day. They're even thought to potentially have emotions. Even notice how I worded that. It's really, it really has a lot of caveats in it because scientists have been so, and they don't want to be seen as anthropomorphizing, adding human-like qualities to animals because that could take away from their research. That could make them seem like a less serious scientist and that their research is compromised in some way. So scientists, when you talk to them as humans, they love the animals that they're working on. They love the nature. And I know for sure that many people feel this spiritual connection. And maybe they're not calling it spiritual, but when they're in nature, they're feeling something. They're feeling like connection, I feel like, is the right word, feeling connection to something greater than themselves. And that greater than themselves might be nature as a whole. But I mean, essentially, we're all... From stardust. So it kind of makes sense that we feel that connection. And I've known so many scientists and myself, I felt the same way. And if you actually listen to Podcast 100 with John Waterman, he describes an experience with an animal, with a polar bear, of feeling like there's an exchange between that animal, feeling a connection between that animal. So I know that exists. And I felt that way too, looking into an elephant's eyes, like, there's moments where you have with animals or i've had moments with coyotes too looking into their eyes where you feel like there's some sort of exchange so what i want to talk about is like is encouraging scientists and non-scientists you all out there too to get connected with that side and i'm going to bring examples from robin's book breeding sweetgrass because she had the background of being an indigenous woman of having this spiritual sense and she's not afraid to talk about it, but she's also trained as a scientist. So I want to just tap into the book and, and talk about some of the things that I really loved about the book and read you some quotes that I loved and use this as a platform that we can talk about these things and use these things to connect more with each other to wildlife and our local communities. I'm going to start reading parts from the book, and this is like from the very beginning where we talk about what science is. And she describes that she says she was born a botanist, that I had shoeboxes of seeds and piles of pressed leaves under my bed, that I'd stop my bike along the road to identify new species, that plants colored my dreams, that the plants had chosen me. So I told him the truth. She's talking about a potential advisor. I was proud of my well-planned answer. And I told him that I chose botany because I wanted to learn about why asters and goldenrod look so beautiful together. And he said, Miss Wall, I must tell you that is not science. She described the different plants. Together, the visual effect is stunning. Purple and gold, the heraldic colors of the king and queen of the meadow, a regal procession in complementary colors. I just wanted to know why. Why do they stand beside each other when they could grow alone? Why this particular pair? There are plenty of pinks and whites and blues dotting the fields. So is it only happenstance that the magnificence of purple and gold end up side by side? But my advisor said, it's not science. And she said, I wanted to know why certain stems bent easily for baskets and some would break. So this is tapping into what she would do as an indigenous woman in her community does. Which plants are edible? Why those little pink orchids only grow under pines, not science, he said. And if you want to study beauty, you should go to art school. She's older, so she's talking about her experience back then. And like, what is science? This is the thing, if you're going to graduate school, that you're going to have to experience. And this is why so many people leave academia, because it's so logical and theoretical. Like, why can't we study which plants bend the best? And now that we're doing more conservation biology, you can do more applied studies. But even today, it can be difficult. It's really difficult with funding to get basic applied research funded. You really need, especially for National Science Foundation work, you really need that theoretical concept. So I want to address the fact that like science, why does science have to be pigeonholed into one thing? And again, I apologize for the messiness of this episode because I didn't plan this ahead of time, but I think it's gonna turn out beautiful in being messy and unplanned. But that disconnect, that's art, that's science. Why can't they be intertwined? And I think we are challenging that notion nowadays, but it's still difficult. Now I want to refer to a passage that really shows the beautiful Knowledge and wisdom of local communities, and especially indigenous communities, who have passed down knowledge for centuries, even millennia, and that scientists for the longest time have thought that, or have often gone into communities acting like they know everything. And I don't want to toot my own, like I say, I will toot my own horn. (laughs) But when I was in Gabon, the field assistants—they loved working with me. They really enjoyed it, and. They just said I was like so easygoing and just so optimistic, but also something that they really appreciate about me. They said the most important thing in working with me is that I didn't act like I knew everything and I didn't. I went there and I was like, I'm going to study elephants. I'm going to study forest elephants. And sure, I have some background knowledge about elephants and an African savannah elephants, but forest elephants aren't actually that well studied. So maybe this worked to my advantage too. But even so, I wouldn't have gone in acting like I know everything. Because they are the people living with the elephants. They are the people leading researchers to the field every single day. They know the forest. They know the animals. I'm a newbie. I don't know anything. I just read papers. So it's so important that as scientists, we really recognize the local communities. And then also we talk about this disconnect between the indigenous path, which is the local community's wisdom and the science and how they can't, at this point, they're not intersecting. So she wrote, to walk the science path, I had stepped off the indigenous knowledge, but the world has a way of guiding your steps. Seemingly out of the blue came an invitation to a small gathering of native elders to talk about traditional knowledge of plants. One, I will never forget, a Navajo woman without a day of university botany training in her life spoke for hours and I hung on every word. One by one, name by name, she told of the plants in her valley where each one lived, when it bloomed, who it liked to live near and all its relationships, who ate it, who lined the nest with its fibers, what kind of medicine it offered. She also shared the stories held by those plants, their origin myths, how they got their names and what they have to tell us. She spoke of beauty. I just love that so much. And again, it alludes to the fact that scientists don't think of, or Western scientists don't think of plants and the species that they study often in this way, they don't think of... Nowadays, we're thinking about the ecology of the plant and the ecosystem that it's in, whereas more, or I guess certain disciplines, I guess ecology has always thought about it in the context, but some ecology studies might bring it to the laboratory and isolate it and have it very separate from where it's living in its outside environment. And what this indigenous woman is incorporating it as everything, not only the knowledge about where the plant is growing and the plants it grows along up with. I love that they call that she refers to the plants as who and not it. And so, so there's all this knowledge, this ecological knowledge, but then there's also the culture and the knowledge of living alongside people as well. And that's also something that I want to talk about. And for the longest time, I have fantasized about having my own nature show. And it's funny because when I started this career, I was not interested in people at all. I wanted to study the animals. I was like, you know, give me the elephants, give me the lions. I want to study them. I don't want to be involved with the people because I think I came with a subconscious bias that people were bad, that they were hurting wildlife, they were harming wildlife, and I didn't really want to work with them. Plus, I just loved animals. Like, I just really wanted to work with the animals. But 20 years later, after being in this field, I have realized that so much of conservation is really about people and not about animals. Yes, of course, there is science that will help us understand animals. The Sumatran rhino is so endangered that we need to understand It's reproductive systems and how to reproduce in captivity to get the species to survive and reintroductions in the wild, et cetera. But for so many species like the forest elephant, they just need habitat and to stop being poached. And for the most part, they're fine. They're going to do great. They're going to reproduce and they're going to do well as a species. But we have ignored the so we've ignored this human element. And going back to the TV show that I want, anyone out there listening, you want to help me make this show? But one thing that I, I've never actually liked nature documentaries to begin with, honestly, and I did love planet Earth. I thought planet Earth was amazing. But one of my favorite parts about planet Earth was watching the behind the scenes and especially for the bird of paradise, because when you're watching the episode on the bird of paradise, you get the impression that you are in this like tropical forest. I forget where the, where the what I was Papua New Guinea, I guess the island or is in Papua New Guinea where it was being filmed, but you get the impression that you are in this like remote rainforest and you're so lucky to see this. And then when you watch the behind the scenes, it turns out it's in somebody's backyard, that this bird is doing this in somebody's backyard. So what I've always wanted to really do as a nature documentary is focus on this intersection between humans and animals and the wildlife that lives within the spaces between us and at E Mammal working at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Science that's what I got to do I got to study animals living in these human spaces and I learned about the coyotes and the foxes and I just became amazed that we have such great amazing carnivores and other wildlife living in these spaces and I became fascinated with that and not excluding the human element but how can we work together and how can we have them be together because again when we remove this human element the important point was the separation of people and wildlife. And I think that's where a lot of conservation has gone wrong. And then also the definition of what is science that Western scientists have decided, like what science is. And like Robin's talking about in her book, that like, why can't we study, you know, why there are certain colors? And scientists do study that, but it's more about like the way that she asked it. So just like, For me, science is a verb. It is the process of finding out the answer to a question through collecting data, analyzing that data, and then investigating it and and making inferences from it to see if it supports your question or answers the question one way or another. But like who gets to decide what those questions are? And we're changing that. This is another part I love, which earlier I referred to Referring to the tree as a who, not as an it. And this part actually talks about it. It's when she's talking with her students. And I'll just read from the book. But swept away with the idea, he felt, he said it felt like an awakening to him, more like a remembering, I think. The animacy of the world is something we already know, but the language of animacy teeters on extinction, not not just for Native peoples, but for everyone. Our toddlers speak of plants and animals as if they were people extending to them self and intention and compassion until we teach them not to. We, click, we quickly re- retrain them and make them forget. When we tell them that the tree is not a who, but an it, we make that maple an object. We put a barrier between us, absolving ourselves of moral responsibility and opening the door to exploitation. Saying it makes a living land into a natural resource. If a maple is an it, we can take up the chainsaw. If the maple is a her, we think twice. And I love that. And this is kind of what goes back to my original premise of doing this episode is this having this spiritual sense. And as scientists, we've our words are really important and we use words that are deliberately softened to take away the who of animals. So for example, when you're talking about elephants in, in Africa, when we're talking about killing them to manage populations, it's referred to as culling. Or with deer here in the United States, we often say harvesting, because harvesting is a lot softer of a word than kill. But that's what we're actually doing. So just looking at, again, asking us to revisit this relationship between humans and animals. And as scientists, we have not become immune to becoming, I think, even more disjointed than sometimes regular people. Sometimes regular people are able to have that connection more. But we have been trained that it's bad to have any sort of connection or to think of animals. We think of animals as individuals, but more from a study perspective, not as much of as they are their own unique individual in this world. Now I'm going to talk about some overlap between things that I've learned through my own spirituality and discovering things like manifestation and what Robin talks about in her book. So one of them is about reciprocity and this idea of giving To give without expectations. And I love this line where she talks about, she says, we are showered every day with gifts, but they are not meant for us to keep. Their life is in their movement, the inhale and exhale of our shared breath. Our work and our joy is to pass along the gift and to trust what we put out into the universe will always come back. That is a huge thing that I believe in, what we put out will come back to us. I love that part. And then also there's, there's such a scarcity mindset in our field, especially when it comes to money. And this is something that I personally grew up with. So I am like currently working through, but one of the things that I have learned to think about money is the ebb and flow of it, because in our society, we're kind of taught to make money and then hold on to it because we're afraid we're going to lose it. And yes, you do need to plan and save. I'm not saying that. But one thing that I try to do or, or I, I actively consciously do is to be okay letting go and be happy about it and be grateful about it. So if money comes into my life or if I need to spend money to do something as a service for or be charged a service from someone, For example, if I need some help around my house, instead of being upset that I have to pay for something, having gratitude even in paying for that money, like think about the person receiving the money. And this can go for anything. If you purchase food at a restaurant, you can be grateful for the restaurant. You can be grateful for the server. You can think about the farmer that is growing the crops. Think about the money that you're spending rather than, oh, this is expensive. Think about how many lives that that money has touched. Then Robin has a whole chapter dedicated towards gratitude, which is so important. When you start showing up in your life grateful, your life changes. I I really love Tony Robbins. I think he's an excellent teacher. And one thing that he always says is that you can always focus on what's right or you can always focus on what's wrong. I think he says it the opposite way, though, because as humans, we are so, we're, we're programmed to focus on what's wrong and fix it. But what's right is always available to us, even in the darkest times. And I think this is an important lesson for conservationists as well, because we get so bogged down by all of the depression out there of all the things that we are losing. So it's so important to focus on what is going right and there are things going right there are things out there there are species that are doing really well and those are the things that we need to hold on to and it doesn't mean that we ignore the other things and we don't work on them but it does mean that we have great we are gratitude for what we have right now the earth even though we are putting all this pressure on it and things are happening she's still here, we are still receiving things. And to cultivate that appreciation for the beauty around us and focus on that, and not just the scarcity that we're losing, that is the mindset that attracts people to our field. We're constantly doing the fear, then it makes people feel helpless and hopeless. And when we cultivate this feeling of optimism and gratitude for what we have, it's more of a magnet. It's more attracting people to our field. So these are just my thoughts on some ways that can help you cope with the devastation that's going out there with our environment, but also, yeah, for helping you cope, for helping you feel good, because when you feel good, you do good things, you do better work. Even if you are in a field where bad things are going on, When you feel good, you do better work, and the outcome is better for everyone. Okay, this part might be a little bit different for some of you guys, and you'll see when I read from the text, but this idea of—I like this text because it gives you the idea of feeling supported. So when I was atheist, I didn't feel supported by anything but myself, but now that I'm spiritual, I genuinely do believe that I am supported by the universe. And when I have that mentality, whether it's true or not, it makes my life so much better. When I believe that things are always working out for me, when I believe that everything I receive is a gift or a blessing. I mean, think about that. Things that are awful can happen in your life and you can turn it into a gift. You really can. You because it can be a way for you to grow. It can be a way for you to help people. There are so many people out there who have gone through really horrible things and have turned that into what they believe are gifts. So this idea that you are being supported by the universe, that the universe wants to give you what you want. This is the principle that I go by and having gratitude for the universe for everything that I have. And I know it can be so hard for us in this world because we're comparing ourselves to other people. And if you're somebody who's in this career, maybe you're feeling really frustrated because you want to be somewhere else, but you're not there yet. So I get it. It can be really frustrating. But for a minute, pause and think about all of the good things that you have in your life. Chances are you're probably healthy. If you're listening to this, you have internet. That's a big deal. A lot of people around the world don't have internet. You probably have access to clean water and food. And even if your finances are not in the best place right now, you probably do have food in your cupboards and a safe place to go to. So think about all just like the basics that you can be really grateful for because there are people in the world, there are lots of people in the world who don't have this. So let me read the section now from the book where she said, I sat once in a graduate writing workshop on relationships to the land. The students all demonstrated a deep respect and affection for nature. They said that nature was the place where they experienced the greatest sense of belonging and well-being. They professed without reservation that they loved the earth. And then I asked them, do you think the earth loves you back? No one was willing to answer that. It was as if I had brought a two-headed porcupine into the classroom, unexpected, prickly. They slowly backed away. Here was a room full of writers passionately wallowing in unrequited love of nature. So I made it hypothetical and asked, what do you suppose would happen if people believe this crazy notion that the earth loved them back? The floodgates opened and they all wanted to talk as once. So again, like having having a relationship with nature and even from a scientific standpoint, we definitely have this view that like we are here to manage the land and like we're the people doing the things. But can we change it? And what would happen if we changed it to a relationship where the earth and nature and the land that we were managing loved us back and had feelings for us? I mean, this is crazy to think about. I feel weird saying this, but I just think this is such an interesting perspective to think. And it is one that I have embraced over the years of having a co-creation mindset with the universe, that I am powerful, the universe is powerful, and that we work together as one. So just something for you to think about. Here's another part I love. Now, again, I feel totally weird as a scientist saying this, but what if we thought of wildlife and nature in a different way instead of us being the dominant one, the dominion, and instead more on equal playing fields? So this is a section from the book. Let me read about harvesting trees. So it says, John has developed a practice eye for these things, but sometimes just to be sure, he'll unsheath his knife and cut out a wedge for a look at the rings. John prefers a tree in the range of 30 to 40 growth rings, each ring as wide as a nickel. When he's found the right one, the harvest begins, not with a saw though, but rather with a conversation. Traditional harvesters, Recognize the individuality of each tree as a person, a non-human forest person. Trees are not taken, but requested. Respectfully, the cutter explains his purpose and the tree is asked permission for harvest. Sometimes the answer is no. It might be a cue in the surroundings, a vireo nest in the branches, or the bark's adamant resistance to the questioning knife that suggests a tree is not willing, or it might be the ineffable knowing that turns him away. If consent is granted, a prayer is made and tobacco is left as a reciprocating gift. Gosh, can you imagine what our world would be like if we went to using that method for taking things from nature? How much better things would be? So just think about your own life. How can you implement type of thinking into your own life? And I know it's hard because we've become so disconnected from things. For example, if I'm going shopping, and I buy a shirt, I'm not going to think about the the cotton plants that generated, it's probably not even cotton, it's probably plastic. Anyways, I'm not going to think about the original resources and ask permission if it's okay. But what if we did think about that? And it's okay to take, because that's what they're doing in this book, they're taking, but they leave a gift and they're asking permission to take ahead of time. So can we pause in our life and think, okay, do I really need this shirt? Do I really want this shirt? And if you do, it's okay. It's okay to take. But again, we're putting that pause in there. And then also even before that, thinking about like the places that we're buying from and the relationship that those places have with the people that, that work there with the, the products that they're sourcing originally to think about all these things and to give it pause. Our world would be so different. So I invite you to take that concept and implement it into your own life. And actually, as I'm looking at the next page that I marked, Robin makes references to stuff like that, like thinking about her laptop and where all the things came from, and that it can be overwhelming to think about all of this stuff. But I love the paragraph that she ends with. They're talking about weaving a basket. And I love this too, because it brings back the concept of mindfulness, which is so important in spirituality, but also just happiness, honestly. Because when you're mindful, you're in the present moment and you're not thinking about the past or the future and you're just with what is. So your mind's not racing about fear, worry, anxiety. It's just here. So she writes, but every once in a while with a basket in hand or a peach or pencil, there is that moment when the mind and spirit open to all the connections. To all the lives and our responsibility to use them well. And just in that moment, I can hear John Pigeon say, Slow down. It's 30 years of a tree's life you've got in your hand there. And we're kind of jumping around here again because, again, I didn't plan this episode and the book kind of jumps around a bunch in different thoughts. But in the beginning, we talked about what is science and the idea that, like, certain things can't be included as science. But Robin's a professor. She's a botanist. She's a scientist. She publishes papers. And she challenges that notion. And one of her students begins a study or does a study on sweetgrass and the implications of people picking it because they pick half of it to use and then they leave the rest of it. And no one before her has studied like how that affects a sweetgrass, if that's a good management method. If it, um, you know, depletes the plant, if it's harmful to the plant or nothing happens or if it's helpful to the plant. But anyways, she decides to study it. And she writes, my colleagues might scoff at the notion of basket makers as scientists, but when Lena and her daughter take, daughters take 50% of the sweet grass, observe the result, evaluate their findings, and then create management guidelines from them. That sounds a lot like experimental science to me. Generations of data collection and validation through time builds up to well-tested theories. Yes, I agree with that. And I wanted to share that because, again, like, like science is about the process. And we, science, it's complicated because it's reserved for people. And it's important to have degrees and to know what you're doing. But one of the reasons why I love citizen science or community science is because people, regular people without degrees without any training, can participate and take part in science. And of course, these are indigenous communities doing it and not maybe recognizing officially that they're doing it as science, but you might not be part of an indigenous community. You probably aren't. So one of the ways that you can get involved in science is through community science. And if you go to SciStarter.org, you can find lots of citizen science projects to partake in. But just wanted to bring that up. To lo- to say that I love that she's challenging what her colleagues said was and wasn't science because what she is doing and what what she talks about Lena is doing as an indigenous woman is that people were doing the scientific process maybe not measuring precisely and that's what she's here to do but it was still the the same process that's followed. Something that I have become really passionate about, as I mentioned from. My forest elephant days that these animals are being poached and I thought science could save them. I thought that we could study them and people would become interested, but data does not change minds. It does not captivate people. So we have to go deeper than that. And when I started working with eMammal and working with camera traps and introducing kids to camera traps, I learned a lot about kids and why people became interested in protecting the environment and conservation. And it has to do with making those connections from an early age. I it can happen at any age though, but it's more likely to happen it's or it's easier to happen at a younger age and it'll be carried on throughout adulthood. And I became that's when I started to shift. Instead of doing research, I wanted to do more education, but not just education, because I simply talking about things or showing things like they really need that connection. So that's really what I am about in this new. Fancy scientist realm is I don't just love doing education. I want to bring more in the emotion and the connection. And this is why I love the Breeding Sweetgrass book so much, because she really gets that it's not just about the facts. It's not just about the information. And um, she talks about taking her class on a trip. And let me read you this part. I had given them so much information, all the patterns and processes laid on so thick as to obscure the most important truth. I miss my chance, leading them down every path, save the one that matters the most. How will people ever care for the fate of moss spiders if we don't teach students to recognize and respond to the world as a gift? I told them all about how it works and nothing of what it meant. We may as well have stayed home and read about the Smokies. In effect, against all my prejudices, I'd worn a white lab coat into the wilderness. So, and that's, and this is something else I want to reiterate to scientists is that Like, yes, it's great. We're sharing our research. It's great. We're communicating. But when it's too stagnant, when it's too facts, when it's too, you know, like ripped away of emotion and connection that we're losing something. And like, yeah, you can stay home and read about it from a book, but that doesn't mean that you're connected by it. And that's one of the things that I really want to do in my career is recreate those connections or foster those connections, especially with kids and especially that I am I'm a parent now. I am. I have a partner in my life, and he has a son, and I'm there every single day. And one of the things that I really want to do is instill this connection with the world around us—that we're not just isolated people living in houses that we're deeply connected to nature, and we just need to give our chance. This we need to give ourselves a chance to experience it, and we're also connected with each other. I'm going to start wrapping up here. I'm not even—I'm not finished with the book. It's like I'm probably two thirds of the way through and I still have so many more pages marked like this. I love this book so much. I can't recommend it enough. But I'm going to stop at the chapter where she talks about Sam and coming home. And again, this relates to spirituality and no matter what you think or believe, but comes back to returning home to yourself. And that's really what I believe like spirituality is like getting in touch with who you are, your authentic self, and listening to yourself and your intuition. And that is something as a scientist, I have learned, like, my intuition doesn't even exist if I was a scientist. But ironically, or funnily, I, we were reading a lab paper recently about conservation decisions and about how conservation managers make decisions. And the older the conservation managers were, the answers for making a decision were based on their intuition. Like they they definitely did studies and took in information. But at the end, it was kind of like a, their assessment Their rather than relying on data, like their feelings about a situation. So as scientists, I think we've been taught to and as people in general, we've been taught to ignore this. What I love from this book is it is coming sense. it is coming back to this sense of home within us. And nature, I believe, is the way to get there. I believe it is the fastest portal to get there is just going outside. I am lucky that I have dogs and they force me to go outside every single day. If I didn't have dogs, honestly, I would probably not go outside that much because I'd be like, oh, I got to work. I got to do this. I should do laundry, etc. But because I have dogs, I'm like, they need exercise. I got to walk them outside. But I need, I mean, I exercise, so I don't need that as exercise. But I need, I need the experience of nature, like the forest bath, what people call being outside. And I notice the difference when I am traveling or when I was with my ex and he would walk the dog several days in a row. I would notice a difference in myself from not having that exposure to light, to trees. And it doesn't, this doesn't have to be pristine nature. This can be neighborhood walking This can be walking in a city park. It's just around being trees and around being plants and around being animals and or even holding them or looking at them. Like there's no it's not a coincidence that when you look at screensavers and stuff, it's pretty much always nature or desktop backgrounds. It's always nature. Nature makes us feel good. And I believe that it is the portal to help us figure out who we are. And there are so many studies about the benefits of nature, mental, physical, emotional, just being out. One study said, I, I think I'm getting this right. Being outside for just 10 minutes can reduce stress. I believe it was done in college students. There's tons and tons of benefits. So I encourage you to go outside. If you're a scientist, if you're training, a scientist, a training to be a scientist, I recommend for you to like take off that hat for a little bit and just like really focus on the connection and what you can experience inside what the data are not giving to you how the animals how the plants are speaking to you like robin says in her book how they are loving you how they are supporting you i know this sounds weird i feel weird saying it but i do believe it and when we can get closer back to this relationship with nature to being part of the landscape to caring about it so deeply having this emotional connection I truly believe that our lives change. And Robin goes into great detail about this. And it's not only about our, the way that we relate to the landscape, but I also believe it has a strong impact on the way that we relate to each other because we are nature as well. We're animals. Whether you like it or not, we're a mammal. And even though we're inside a lot of the time, we're still animals. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was messy and unconventional, but this is where I am in my life. And I do want to end with one thing. I talked about manifestation and manifestation is a word that is triggering. I guess triggering is the right word to say that people think it's like you're kind of like making stuff up. Like like oh, if I like manifest something, it's like I can I'm like I'm going to manifest myself a Lamborghini. I don't want a Lamborghini, but whatever. But manifestation, all it is, and I've used manifestation in my life towards my advantage, and I love it. And you are manifesting, actually, whether you know it or not. And athletes use it a lot. But really manifesting is visualizing something in your head before it becomes true. So athletes use it a lot, like when they're training for the Olympics or important games, they'll visualize themselves performing. They'll visualize themselves getting what they want. So I encourage you to use that in your life with the results that you want. If you want to become a high-level scientist at a nonprofit like the Nature Conservancy, spend some time each day visualizing that outcome and the steps to get there will become clearer and your mind will believe that you can do it and then you'll find yourself doing it eventually. So I just wanted to add that in there so you guys don't think I'm crazy. But these things have really helped me in my life. They have totally changed my life for the past several years. So I encourage you to take them on and, of course, get Robin's book, Breaking Sweet Grass. I love it. I can't recommend it enough. Thanks, guys. Be kind to each other. Get outside. Be kind to animals. And have a fantastic day. Are you an inspiring or entry-level wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or any other allergist wanting a career working with wildlife? who's struggling, feeling stuck, lost, confused, or just plain worried about this career, then you are gonna wanna make sure to do these three things. First, head over to FancyScientist.com and check out all of the resources I have for you. You'll find tons of informative blog posts and free tools. In my program section, you'll find masterclasses and self-paced programs, some of which are 100% free. And if you want to go even deeper with me and have the mentoring you always wanted, then check out my one-on-one and group mentoring programs. Second, while you're over there, you'll want to make sure to sign up for my newsletter where you'll be the first to know about my latest blog posts, podcast episodes, free trainings, and program offers. Sign up for my newsletter or opt in to any of my freebies and you'll be added to the list. Third, join our community at the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. This is based on my book of the same name that has sold thousands of copies, helping aspiring wildlife biologists literally all over the world. In this group, my intention is to connect, support, and inspire future wildlife professionals. Come for daily affirmations to ensure your mind is primed for success, exclusive tips, myth-busting, and more. If this episode helped you, please be sure to leave a review to help us reach even more people with this important message. You'll for sure receive extra positive vibes and love from me.